Hi, Dave Emmer here. This is Football Record Program number 1289. He review number 26 with Jim Diagenio and Lisa Peace about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on February 10th of the year 2023. And once again, it is my great pleasure to present Jim Diagenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed and JFK Revisited and selected by Oliver Stone to write the screenplay for JFK Revisited. And it is our special privilege to be joined by Lisa Peace, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail about the assassination of RFK, which we will be detailing in future interviews, and also a major participant in the aforementioned JFK Revisited documentary by Oliver Stone. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to meet you after all these years of listening to you. So thank you. <laughs> well, uh, let's plunge right in then. And uh, let me dig into my uh, bag of tips here. And since we're going to be doing two interviews that will be bookends to our long series here, I want to introduce an element that is not only some commentary that you have, uh, and by the way, Jim is also the editor of the book and the author of the book, uh, J, uh, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. On page 352, Lisa quotes uh, President Sukarno of Indonesia as follows. In an oral history interview that Sukarno gave after John Kennedy's death, he said words to the effect that what made Kennedy special is that he believed non-alignment was not amoral as it had been under John Foster Bellis. I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. Uh, yes, indeed, Lisa, it is. And beyond that, the dynamic that we have spoken about so often in the discussion of JFK Revisited and in other programs that I have done concerns the Western Allies reneging on a promise made during World War II to grant independence to colonial territories that had been conquered by Axis nations once they had been liberated. That reneging on that promise set the stage for casting what we call the non-aligned world or the developing countries into the bloody maelstrom of the Cold War. And in so many ways, and we will be reviewing many of those ways, what JFK did was to attempt to walk back that dynamic. And Lisa, in the fourth hour of the four part documentary for one-hour chapters, you discuss the widespread memorialization of JFK after his death in the developing world. And I wonder if you would detail that for us. Yes. Uh, People were really upset about Kennedy for, for the reason you just mentioned. He was one of the few world leaders who really sided with a nation's right to self-determination, whereas most leaders said, well, you're either with us or you're against us. You're either pro-U.S. or you're pro-Soviet Union, and there's no in-between. Kennedy's like, well, wait, all these other nations really want to be independent, and they have their own issues, and they should be able to solve them themselves. And so that made him beloved around the world, but especially in the developing nations, such as in Latin America. And in the Yucatan Peninsula, for example, some peasants got together and formed a peace garden in his honor. Places without electricity, people lit candles, you know, to, you know, uh, honor his passing. Uh, people went to the embassies because, you know, they didn't know where to go. So they went to the U.S. Embassy to honor Kennedy. It was just incredible. It was probably one of the first international assassinations that really touched everybody on the planet because the U.S. is such a big stick in the world. And Kennedy was one of the few not whacking other nations with it. But there, would there, you there say, was a church, there was a church ahead, in, 
There was a church in Kenya that was built for 600 people. They put 4,000 people in that church. Wow. When Kennedy was assassinated. A guy, a guy in, um, I think it was, uh, I think, I think it was, uh, uh, Egypt. He rode his bike 26 miles. He was a farmer and he was waiting at the American embassy before the diplomat got in that day. All right. And he was sitting on his bicycle and he said, I don't know why I'm here, but I just know that John Kennedy was my friend and Aww. I wanted, and I, and I wanted to pay my respects. Okay. That's, that's the kind of reaction that the, that the third world had upon. And I, I, I was really terrific that Bobby Kennedy Jr. had the lead in on that. If you remember in the film, yes. uh, he, he said, you know, let's forget about polls. Let's talk about the metric of who is dedicated in the third world. And in yeah, that, how many statues, how many right. streets are named after him, etc. Right. Yes. In that respect, it's no contest. Okay. <laughs> now, would, would you say, uh, Jim and Lisa, that this widespread memorialization and uh, the uh, grief of which that was emblematic is derivative of JFK's policies toward the developing world? Yes, I think especially because of that. I mean, in June, you know, of the year he was killed, that's when he was talking about, I want to bring peace to the world. And he's like, and I don't mean a Pax Americana. I don't mean an American enforced peace. I mean, real genuine peace. And he talked about love. I mean, he talked about things that leaders don't talk about. You know, he didn't say, you know, and if you don't do what I say, we're going to come and invade your country, which is kind of the implied threat that most leaders put around the world. But Lisa, you mentioned that uh, journalist Pete Hamill uh, oh, was yeah. his car broke down in rural Mexico. Uh, relate that for us. Yes, uh, he uh, <laughs> he was driving around. Yes, his car broke down and and he needed water and, you know, help. And there was a a little like cottage nearby and he wasn't sure, you know, what he was getting into. It's like, are these nice people? Are these terrible people? Am I going to be shot? You know, whatever. And he went and kind of knocked on the door tentatively. And, and then when the woman opened the door, he saw behind her a cross and a picture of, in that case, it was, I think, um, I thought it was Bobby Kennedy. Uh, it could have been John Kennedy. I honestly, I don't remember now, but he, one of the Kennedy brothers, maybe John Kennedy. And he was so, you know, instantly felt he was safe and he was among friends. And it was a very moving story. The way he related it, sadly, I'm not the writer that Pete Hamill was. He said he had such a gift for words. Kwame uh, and Kumo was a major leader of Ghana and also uh, a man with tremendous uh, gravitas in the developing world. When he was handed a copy of the Warren Report by the U.S. ambassador to Ghana, I believe it was, uh, what was his reaction and why? Take it, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he, uh, he was handed the Warren Report, okay, and he leafed through the first few pages and he saw Alan Dulles's name as one of the commissioners. He immediately folded up the book, handed it back and said, whitewash. <laughs> well, he literally <laughs> pointed to Dulles's name and said, whitewash. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, right, right. And by the way, um, that ambassador was Richard Mahoney's father. Okay. Right, and, right. and that's, that's how Richard Mahoney uh, got the idea to write his, I don't think there's any question about this, his landmark book, JFK Ordeal in Africa, which I yes. truly believe is a milestone in the literature on, on the Kennedy presidency. And so, I, and I was very glad that Oliver got him, okay, to come in and, and he essentially mostly talked about the Congo, but he also talked about the monumental Algeria speech. The 1957 speech. Right. That, that, um, that everybody and their mother 
criticized uh, JFK for giving on the floor of the Senate over the whole civil war off the north coast of Africa. Everybody which, but his father, who said, right. a year from now, you're going to look like a forward thinker on right. this. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. See, see, JFK was getting pummeled from so many directions, even from Adlai Stevenson. Okay. And <laughs> Shocking. So, yeah. so he called his father and said, did I make a mistake? And his father goes, you don't know how lucky you are. One, <laughs> one year from now. When Ed, this thing is still going on, people will look, will look back at you as being some kind of a prophet. And that's, that's what happened. That is exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, in, in the context of not only JFK's policies or intended policies, because as we've seen and as we will review, many of those were interdicted and or reversed after his assassination. But JFK had a special affinity for the book, The Ugly American. Uh, develop what that signified in your opinion. Do you want to take that, Lisa? No, go me? ahead, Jim. I'll, okay, I'll take some right. others. Yeah. The, 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 the Ugly American was a very, very controversial book. Okay. That, uh, that came out, I believe in 1956 or 57. Okay. And, what it depicted was a American diplomatic corps in Southeast Asia that was completely out of sync with the realities that were going on for the lives of the natives there. All right. And it depicted them as being kind of elite, you know, drinking champagne or, you know, <laughs> high priced wine on weekends, not even knowing how to speak the language of the people that they're supposed to be serving. All right. And it, it projects what is going to happen in South Vietnam. All right. In rather Vietnam in general. Okay. That the, the, that the communists are going to find a way to go ahead and take advantage of the American incompetence. All right. And Kennedy absolutely loved he loved the book okay he loved the book because it was so much in sync you know with what his thinking was about america in the third world and he did two things he took out a full page ad of the new york times which he paid for himself all right and then he bought a hundred copies of the book and he mailed them to every single senator Okay, in that he was serving with. All right. And see, this is one of the things that Kennedy achieved that made him by the time 1958, 1959, he became the leading alternative to the Dulles brothers and Eisenhower as a different way to approach foreign policy. All right. And he, by this time, by the way, by the time he did that, he was pulling other people in his direction, like Hubert Humphrey. Okay. That, that Kennedy was really onto something about this. Uh, we uh, began this interview by, re I read uh, part of a quote uh, in which Lisa in turn quoted the President Sukarno of Indonesia. Uh, Indonesia was a major focal point of American covert operation before JFK came to office. Uh, and uh, Jim and Lisa, I wonder if you would relate to us. We talked about what happened in Indonesia before, but uh, by way of review, uh, what did JFK encounter when he spoke with Alan Dulles about Indonesia? And who was Alan Pope and what is his significance? So Alan Pope, I'm going to take those in backward order, was kind of the Eugene Hassenfuss of 
uh Indonesia in the sense that he was a pilot who was shot down in a war that wasn't supposed to be happening. The CIA had arranged a covert operation, which by the way, Lee Harvey Oswald may have played a small role in because his he was in the Marines at the time and his group was stationed off of Subic Bay, which was a staging ground for the Indonesian coup operation. Uh they were trying to overthrow Sukarno. They wanted to kill him because Sukarno was kind of the leader of the non-aligned movement. It wasn't even just Indonesia. Sukarno was so popular, he'd arranged this Bandung conference uh, with Mao Zedong and uh, several of the other leaders. And uh, he was very powerful. And so the CIA is like, well, we can't have that. Because the Indonesia, by the way, was, I think even then was one of the fifth most populous nations in the world. So one, there are a lot of people there. Two, there are a lot of natural resources there. There's rubber. There's a lot of oil. And it turned out there was also a huge mountain. They called Copper Mountain, but Alan Dulles and some of his buddies at Shell Oil had discovered back in the 30s that the mountain had a very rich uh, ore of gold as well. And they kept this secret, and they didn't even tell Kennedy about that. And, you know, they went to him and said, we have to, you know, overthrow Sukarno because he's a communist. And, and JFK's like, well, but it's their nation. It's their choice. He's not attacking us. I don't see the threat, you know, and – uh that obviously didn't sit well with Alan Dulles. By then, the brother John Foster Dulles was dead. But Kennedy was very much in support of Indonesian independence from the Dutch and then of um the area that had this big gold mountain, again, which Kennedy didn't know about the gold, but he knew about the natives who lived there. The area then was called West Erian, and then it was called Erian Jaya, and today we know it as West Papua. Uh But that that region... Um, was native kind of aboriginal people. They didn't even really consider themselves Indonesians. So Kennedy was supporting a vote for whether they even wanted to join Indonesia or not. And, uh, you know, he was going to oversee that. And I believe he was killed before that vote came to pass. And so his brother then went to the UN and said, well, we still have to have this vote, whether they want to be independent or part of Indonesia. But of course, by then, Indonesia had launched this huge propaganda campaign. And by then, unfortunately, uh, by, because the, the vote took place in 1969 and Sukarno had been ousted in 1965, probably because he didn't have Kennedy there to protect him anymore, um, from the CIA's activities. Uh, cause Kennedy learned the CIA had been trying to kill him and, and he's like, well, no wonder Sukarno hates us. You know, he has to sit down with the people who tried to kill him. And, uh, and Sukarno in turn loved Robert. I mean, John, well, he loved them both, but especially John Kennedy. He's like, he was my friend. Why did he have to die? You know, cause at that point in time, I don't think he understood how significant Kennedy was in opposing uh, kind of American empire, you know, something that, that wasn't talked about in the press that America was building an empire, but we were and to, to great disastrous effect around the world. See, see, in, in, in 1958, in 1958, the CIA launched what was probably the biggest operation, uh, up until the Bay of Pigs. All right. And like the Bay of Pigs, it also failed. All right. And as Lisa talks about this Pope guy. All right. This is one of the things that turned the tide because it exposed, as Sukarno was saying from the beginning, this rebellion is not a rebellion. This is a CIA operation. Okay. And so when Pope was shot down, Sukarno had the proof. That it was really a CIA, and it, and it was. It was like I said, it was the biggest CIA operation until the Bay of Pigs, all right. And uh, I, and the Dulles brothers, the Dulles brothers, really did not like Sukarno because at what what happened was this: the chain of events was this: the CIA overthrows Mossadegh, mm-hmm. number one. The CIA overthrows Arbenz. Mm-hmm. So now these guys like Nasser, okay, and Sicarno, now they see the writing on the wall, okay. Any one of us could be next, all right. And so they decide to have this meeting in Bandung in 1955, 
And Sukarno was the host of this meeting. And this was supposed to be what they called the non-aligned union. You know, people who didn't want to be a part of the Cold War. They just wanted to go ahead and run their own governments and be independent. And John Foster Dulles hated this. Because to him, he was one of these guys who said, look, you're either for us or against us. Okay, it's one way or the other. There's no neutrality in the third world. And when Nasser, when Nasser heard this, you know, from Egypt, he said, look, I have my constituency because I'm perceived as being my own man. Mm-hmm. I, if I join this Baghdad pact, you know who the silent partner is going to be, and that's going to be England. And England is the biggest colonizer in the whole world. Okay, so I'm going to look like a stooge. So that's why I can't join. And from that moment on, you know, Washington had it in for Nasser. And from Bandung gone, they had it in for Sukarno. Uh, going back briefly to Indonesia, before we talk about Nasser and the political maneuvering around first the Aswan Dam and then how that impacted the Suez Canal, uh, uh, Lisa spoke about the Mountain of Gold or the Copper Mountain. Uh, after Sukarno was overthrown in 65, that was exploited by Freeport, uh, Freeport Mining, Freeport Sulphur, uh, Freeport, Freeport Sulphur. Sulphur was, right. Uh, Freeport Sulphur was the parent company. Freeport Mining was one of the subsidiaries. Freeport Indonesia was another subsidiary, but it was all part of Freeport Sulphur, which is now today known as, uh, Freeport McMoran, which is three names tied together. Uh, and they were they were also exploiting nickel in Cuba and trying to overthrow Castro. This company was working with the CIA directly to try and overthrow Castro so that they could preserve their very lucrative nickel operation in Cuba. And and it's it was known as a Rockefeller company in that nearly everybody on the board of directors had a close tie to the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rockefeller family, the Rockefeller millions billions um yeah so there's some good uh circumstantial evidence of course that the rockefellers helped you know push the cia to do the coup in part so they could gain control of what is now one of the world's largest and rich gold mines and that's just that's so against everything Kennedy believed is like he believed we did not have the right to take the resources of other nations. That was, that was key. You know, we had the right to deal with them and to trade with them, but not to steal from them. Alan Dulles, you know, and John Foster, it's like, you know, we have the right to steal from anybody who lets us, you know, if we can work a deal and and take something for nothing or threaten them with arms, you know, we're going to do it. (laughs) You know, it's just a completely different worldview. And yeah, at one point, my RFK book was going to be called Collision Course because those two world views were destined to collide at some point and only one of them was going to survive. And it's very unfortunate for the whole world that it was the the dullest view that survived and not the Kennedy view of the world. See, Lisa, I give Lisa so much credit for this because she wrote a incredibly insightful two-part article for Probe magazine, which I think, was that 95 you wrote down? Somewhere back there is early 90s, yeah. About 95. And she wrote a two-part article, which I still think is one of the best things that we ever published. All right. And it was, the first part was about Freeport and Cuba. And the second part was about Freeport and Indonesia, all right? And what she did is she connected all of these layers of people, you know, from, from, from David Phillips to Jock Whitney, all right, to the Rockefeller clan, all in this one nexus. And because they, they, they were all there, all right? And, and she, what she did is she was one of the very first people, if not the first person, who wrote about the fact that the overthrow of Sukarno would not have happened if Kennedy had lived. 
And I have to say, this, this is what we got Bradley Simpson to say. Okay, and he's uh, he's a PhD, and he's one of the foremost uh, authorities on Indonesia today. And we and Oliver actually got Bradley Simpson to say that also, you know. And now, Lisa said it 25 years ago, 27 <laughs> years ago. Okay, now it's become commonplace, and you know, and, and it's and and she was the person who started the rock rolling down the hill. I also found a student report on the 65 coup that really laid out the case for the CIA's involvement. I found it in an obscure part of the library. I don't even remember now how I stumbled upon it. But I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so interesting. Mm -hmm. So I had to write about that because at the time it was it was, again, advertised as a a communist coup or a anti-communist coup that Suharto came in and put down pretending to protect Sukarno, but then using that to kind of enclose Sukarno and marginalize him until Sukarno is suddenly under house arrest and Suharto is in power. So it was like a, a counter coup, a false flag operation, essentially, you know, where they, they pretended to attack Sukarno and then pretended to be the good guys coming in to put down the attack, which, by the way, is very similar to the plot that unraveled at the Aswan Dam, <laughs> which I know see, we'll talk see, about later. <laughs> see, the thing is, in... Uh, one of these, I can't remember, the, a guy named McGee wrote a book about the CIA. Uh, it was published by my publisher, Sheridan Square Press. And in that book, he said he had to submit that for publication to the CIA. He said one of the parts that they really censored was what he wrote about Indonesia. Okay, but he did manage to get in the fact that the CIA closely held their CIA plan for the overthrow of Sukarno because they considered it their masterpiece of covert action. And when you think of it, it really was. You know, I hate to give these guys any credit, you know, but it, it really was a beautifully, wonderfully, intricately worked out plot, you know, in which, you know, people were befuddled for years trying to figure out what the heck happened here, you know. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think the book was called Deadly Deceits by Ralph Yeah, McGay. that's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, Jim, we've spoken about this in uh, the long series of interviews we did about um, uh, Destiny the Crave and also previously in this series. But the main Freeport mining also was one of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that enabled Jim Garrison to link David Ferry and Clay Shaw and Cuba in those machinations. Uh, if you would briefly encapsulate that for us. Yeah, that that's one of the things Lisa uncovered. Okay, <laughs> Going through the files that we had from Jim Garrison, she went through them and she discovered there was a vice president of the company whose name was White and and – he worked with Clay Shaw and, and Ferry had taken trips there and Jules Rico Kimball, who shows up in both the Martin Luther King assassination files and the JFK assassination files were involved in this. Um, I, I think even Mayhew is involved, you know, trying to get the mobsters to go there and pretend that they're posing as a, Mining company executives, David Phillips had offices out of the Freeport's sulfur nickel company. And so Garrison, it's like Garrison was always one step away from David Phillips, but he never could quite connect the dots because he didn't know who David Phillips was or why he mattered. But it's like he had direct associates of David Phillips kind of tying into the plot at every angle, but he couldn't quite tie the last knot there. See, they, 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 there was a memo that Garrison had about a, an informant that said Shaw and Ferry, uh, had gone to Canada, uh, in order to explore a nickel mining operation. Okay. Uh, where we could smelt the, the nickel up in Canada and bring it down through Canada to the United States. All right. And that, of course, was part of the whole Freeport operation because, because, uh, Castro, there was a ban on bringing it in directly. Right. right. So right. they had to go around. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. So th see, these are the kind of things I see. Garrison was so far ahead of the curve 
you know, that uh, I don't think people could keep up with them. Right. Um, As we are speaking on February 10th, uh, there has been some discussion, although not nearly as much as I think there should have been, about a Substack article written by Seymour Hirsch about the uh, sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarhurst in 1974, in the immediate aftermath of Watergate, uh, wrote an article about CIA spying on American citizens, and that keyed investigations by Frank Church and uh, Representative Pike. Uh, I wonder if you would talk about that and also talk about former Warren Commission member and then President Gerald Ford authorizing the Rockefeller Commission. Yeah, Jim, I'll take that one. Um, yeah, Cy Hirsch kind of got caught in an internecine war in the CIA. Colby was trying to get rid of James Angleton at that point because Angleton had been running these illegal domestic operations. And so although Colby denies leaking to Cy Hirsch, it does seem that Colby probably had somebody else leak to Cy Hirsch some of these illegal operations. It was written up on December 24th, Christmas Eve, so not a lot of people saw the original article because everybody's busy with their family. But that article, you know, led to cries for a serious investigation. So Ford, you know, stepped up to form the Rockefeller Commission in an attempt to head off any congressional investigation in the same way that the Warren Commission was set up in an attempt to head off a more serious FBI or Dallas authorities or Senate investigation into what happened there. But, uh, but, you know, Ford instantly staffed it with all these intelligence insiders. It was so transparent to the media. They're like, why did you pick all these people? It looks like a whitewash before you even started. And Ford's like, well, we have to protect some very sensitive operations. And the media's like, like what? And he said, like assassination. And then he immediately said, that's <laughs> off the record. But it was too late because he said that first and he hadn't said that's off the record first. And so some people ran right to the media with that. And then, of course, the Senate got super involved. Uh, Senator Frank Church led a Senate Intelligence Committee investigation. And Otis Pike inherited the House Select Committee from an earlier leader whose name escapes me. But uh, the two of them did much deeper <laughs> investigations than the Rockefeller Commission ever did. And of course, you know, Gerald Ford himself didn't have a lot of credit credibility having been a Warren Commission member himself. So it's like he was already a cover-up guy, appointing more cover-up guys, and so that's why the Senate got involved. And and although the Church Committee's original theory was that the CIA was a rogue elephant in the report, they'd kind of walked that back and said the CIA's been very responsive to the president. Well that's really not true. And the Pike report was much more you know, uh, explicit about that and said, boy, if this committee's experience is anything, you know, to be matched to reality, the CIA is completely out of control and beyond the reach of any government organization, including the president. So, of course, their report was censored. <laughs> and the, the church committee report, you know, which had soft peddled their conclusions got released. And that's what most of the world knew until uh, I think it was Daniel Shore took a copy of the report to the village voice and leaked it. And even then it's like to this day, most people have heard of the church committee and almost ne- nobody knows about the Pike committee and their conclusions, which were, were, which were stunning. The Pike committee even found out that the white house was entirely infiltrated with CIA people. They said secretaries, janitors, gardeners were working for the CIA at the white house and reporting on everything that happened there. I mean, it's like, who's running the country when you have stuff like that going on? It's incredible. You know, one of the things that uh, I've brought up in past discussions, um, we've, we've spoken about the CIA's amplification of the term conspiracy theory and mm-hmm. how that has been weaponized. I think a much more useful and illustrative term is networking. Uh, with regard to the makeup of the Rockefeller Commission, which you alluded to, one of the people who was a member of that was former General Lyman Lemnitzer. Uh, in the documentary at one point, there is 
uh, a, I don't know if voiceover would be quite the word, but a uh, running commentary by both Jim and Oliver Stone about the, uh, the documentary. And at one point, Oliver Stone makes a passing reference to Operation Sunrise, which was a clandestine negotiation which Alan Dulles and others were engaging in during the closing phase of World War II, completely behind the back of President Roosevelt and against his explicit orders, the top military officer involved with Alan Dulles in that was General Lyman Lemitzer, who then appeared as a character witness for SS General Carl Wolf at his Nuremberg trial. He was Heinrich Himmler's personal adjutant. And then, of course, something that we've spoken about, Lisa, uh, at a considerable length with Jim is the antipathy, the open antipathy between uh, then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Lyman Lemitzer, and JFK. So right. when one uses the term conspiracy theory, it, it accuses, frankly, the jackasses to go, oh, I don't believe in conspiracy theory. Make sure you don't get any on your shoes, you know. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think a much more useful and revealing term is networking, because that is what we see here. And uh, another member of the Rockefeller Commission was Ronald Reagan, who refused to extradite Edgar Eugene Bradley to New Orleans. Right. That's that's correct. Yeah. uh, Tell us about the trip committee and what they were looking into with regard to the CIA and mafia attempts at killing Castro. Oh, let me take this one, too, because I actually did a lot of research on this. And the CIA did its own internal investigation after the 1967 article um, of Jack Anderson, which suggested that the CIA had uh, been trying to kill Castro. And maybe I think he said something like some of those arrows might have turned around and ended up in Dilly Plaza. I'm, I'm paraphrasing badly. But obviously, yeah, timed with the garrison investigation. It was kind of a way to say, well, there may have been CIA involvement, but not, it's not like the CIA tried to kill Kennedy, but their attempts to kill Castro provoke Castro to kill Kennedy. That was what they were trying to suggest through Anderson, who was kind of an intelligence conduit. I mean, you know, he often reported what CIA assets told him. But the, the real issue is, did the Kennedys even try to kill Castro? And the answer is absolutely not. And we know this for fact because in the CIA's Inspector General report, which was in essence a damage control report after the article came out, because it wasn't part of the CIA leaks. It's not like the head guy at the CIA leaks it. One, you know, a, a small cadre of assets leak this kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and uh anyway, so but in the IG report, they ask themselves and they say, look, can we claim the plots were done under Kennedy's authority? And they answer their own question. Not in this case. And they say, although we said, you know, we told them of the plots that had ended. We never told them of the plots that were continuing. And they go even further where they kind of call phase one and phase two. And phase one were the non-lethal plots. Phase two were the lethal plots where they actually tried to kill him. Phase one was like they wanted to make his beard fall out and discredit him among his people and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so it's it's also seems like the CIA was saying we only told them about the phase one plots, like they they didn't really acknowledge the phase two plots uh to the Kennedys. And there's another place where they look at one of the articles and, you know, they put like a claim in the article and then to the right, they put whether it's true or false and additional explanation. And when it says like Kennedy ordered, you know, the Castro plots on the right, they just put not true. I mean, it's just blatant. The CIA knew this, but, but, uh, Sam Halpern, a former New York Times journalist and a longtime CIA asset and the right hand of Richard Helms for a time, went around and told anybody who would listen that the Kennedys had authorized the plots. And this became established history, even though it was completely false at every turn. And Halpern knew it was false, and he just lied his 
eyes out. And John Newman wrote a section of one of his books on how, you know, what a big liar Sam Halpern was. And it's funny because I was the one who pointed out to both David Talbot and John Newman. I'm like, look, if you trace back every accusation that the CIA, that the Kennedys were behind the Castro plots, it always comes back to Sam Halpern. There is no other source. And, you know, they both kind of tried to argue that with me, but I made them both go look and they both came to agree with me. It's like, oh, my God, this really did stem from Sam Alpern. So it's it's amazing what one person lying, how they can completely derail history with a lie for years. And uh anyway, do you, do, 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 do you want to know, do you want to know how opposed Kennedy was to these plots to kill foreign leaders? Senator George Smathers from Florida was a pal of the CIA, okay? And so one, and he was a friend of JFK's. So one night, they're in the White House, okay? And they're having a couple of drinks after dinner. And Smathers tries to bring this up. You know what Kennedy did? He smashed a plate over the table and said, I don't want to hear this stuff, okay? You know, so that that's how opposed Kennedy was to these secret plots to kill foreign leaders. And then all you have to do is take a look at the picture that we have in the film and that was on the cover of uh, Mahoney's book when Kennedy gets the news that Lumumba's assassinated. I mean, just take a look at his face there, all right? And so that's another indication. He didn't want to have anything to do with these kind of plots. Yeah, that was not who Kennedy was. And I didn't realize what an anomaly he was in government until many years later. It's like we, we really haven't had anyone like him before or since. It's really sad. Uh, Lisa, we were speaking in our last three interviews with Jim, uh, digressing a little bit from the main subject material of the documentary, but we were speaking about JFK's and RFK's civil rights policies based on that magnificent four-part essay that the uh, four-part series that Jim has on KennedysandKing.com. And we spoke about the two assassinations of both Kennedys uh, and in addition to killing their bodies back in 1963 and 1968, there has been an equally important assassination of their historical record, which has been uh, not just obfuscated, but deliberately distorted by way of eliminating any real awareness of what these men were as leaders and as uh, examples. Exactly. Because if you paint the Kennedys as these cold warriors and hardcore anti-communists, which on, on one level they were, I mean, neither of them supported communism on any level, but that doesn't mean they were going to go overthrow communist leaders. But by doing that, by making them look, you know, hardcore and almost right wing in some cases, it takes the spotlight off the CIA because then people are like, well, why did the CIA try to kill Kennedy? Because obviously they have the same agenda. You know, it was very important to completely distort the record. And here's something almost no one ever talks about. Um, every few years, there's this volume on foreign relations of the United States. And I remember reading early in my research that the volume of the Kennedy years had been mysteriously delayed and that LBJ's records had been released and Nixon's records had been released and Kennedy's were released almost a decade later. And I'm like, I bet it's because then you see the real Kennedy. And sure enough, when it was finally released, that's what it shows. It shows Kennedy trying to give economic aid to Sukarno, a communist, you know, because he knew that if he, didn't offer some sort of uh, economic aid, pretty soon the Soviets would be offering Sukarno military aid. And so Kennedy was trying to help these non-aligned nations. And, you know, he's being so unique on the world scene by not thinking in a binary way. This is something I'm just, I'm so upset with in the world. There's too much binary thinking. Something is either this or that. And there's usually a lot of shades of gray in between. And Kennedy was sophisticated enough to see those shades of gray. Most of the people he was dealing with saw either white or black. And so, you know, he had trouble with that. 
Well, we've got a little less than 15 minutes left in this interview. Uh, Lisa, you were speaking of the internecine warfare within the CIA between uh, then-Director William Colby and longtime CIA counterintelligence chief James Angleton. Angleton also figures into the situation of Otto Otepka, whom we have spoken about before. But I wonder if you would uh, review and encapsulate for us, uh, Otto Opepka's inquiries into Angleton's, quote, defector, unquote, program to the Soviet Union, and how that relates to not only B. Harvey Oswald, but the remarkable treatment that Otto Opepka was afforded. Yes, yes. Again, that was something I researched and wrote about for Probe years ago, and I was glad it was incorporated into the documentary. Otto Otepka was a State Department security officer, um, very much like the CIA's Office of Security. Their job is to protect the nation from threats, from uh, from foreign agents, etc. And Otto Otepka noticed that suddenly all these, like, Navy guys and Marine guys were defecting to the Soviet Union. So he's like, is this for real or is the CIA, you know, running spies in the Soviet Union? And so he sent a request over to CIA. It's like, can you tell me, are these guys yours? Well, when that arrived at CIA, it was instantly flagged and shoved off, not just to Angleton's group, because Angleton ran like a 200 person counterintelligence unit. He also had within that unit kind of his own little private black ops unit called CI SIG for Special Investigations Group. That group did mole hunting and coup plots, I believe, and, you know, some other nefarious things. And that's where the file was routed. So somebody recognized right away, oh, this is one of Angleton's top secret operations. And and so Otto, you know, Tepka had no idea that he'd basically tripped a wire in the CIA because no one was supposed to figure that out. I mean, you know, in retrospect, they must have thought everybody was really dumb in the rest of the world because how many people were defecting to the Soviet Union at that point in time? I mean, all we saw were pictures of bread lines and this and that. You know, it's like, why would somebody leave America to go stand in a bread line in the Soviet Union? So it made no sense on the surface. So Otto Tepka started digging, and all of a sudden, Otto Tepka was being called up on behaviors and things, classified documents started showing up his burn bags that he had not put there. He was being framed and marginalized and eventually ousted shortly before Kennedy was killed. And they literally drilled a hole into his safe to see what he had there. And one of the files in that safe was about Lee Harvey Oswald. He was trying to figure out, because there had been, you know, news articles about this Marine who had been part of the U-2 program who went to the Soviet Union. And, you know, that could have been a serious threat to America. And he took it at face value. It's like, well, if he is a defector, you know, we should do something about it. You know, curiously, the CIA didn't seem to have a problem with somebody who who knew the codes to their U-2 uh, planes and, you know, knew the altitudes that they flew at. They seemed to have no problem with him defecting to the Soviet Union because, of course, he never really did defect. And that's uh, something the press has always kind of missed the boat on. He never defected. He never signed the formal papers or actually defected. He pretended to defect. Uh, to you know, as part of the legend building the CIA was doing. Now, I'm sure Oswald had no idea at that time, and the CIA had no idea at that time, that they were grooming him for the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I think they were grooming him to be a fall guy in a plot against Castro. But then, you know, when Kennedy started really making peace with the Soviet Union, that's when I think the the role that Oswald was going to play changed without Oswald's knowledge. And he was being made the patsy in the Dallas plot. Um, so, yeah, when Otto Atepka found out about that, and it was Angleton's people who were kind of helping set him up. It's it's shocking. It, this kind of stuff shouldn't happen. And, of course, in later years, Sarah McLennan said she talked to Otto Atepka, and he told her that he knew who had killed JFK, but that he would say no more on the subject. And, in and he her was own- fired. He oh, yeah, he was fired. He was killer. fired, yeah, like in October, and then Kennedy is killed in November. I mean, it's hard not to draw a direct line there. He was fired to discredit him because he obviously knew there was more to Oswald than met the official story. 
and they didn't they didn't want him talking and if he did talk they didn't want anybody believing him so that's why they went to these incredible lengths to discredit him and and uh it's really unfortunate you know a guy happens to stumble upon the truth and his whole life comes crumbling down that should not happen in america or they anywhere. drilled a hole into his safe yep <laughs> you believe that? Okay. <laughs> they really wanted to know what he had and what he was going to say about it. Yeah. yeah. And this yeah. was, I, I think they drilled it 17 days before the assassination. Yeah. Okay. So that's how desperate they were to find out what he had on Oswald. And it's that kind of before the fact events, like, uh, you know, in, in, um, Richard Helms had gone to Kennedy's office three days before the assassination, and he tried to convince JFK that there was a Cuban plot to export the revolution to Venezuela. And Kennedy wasn't falling for it, so on the way out, Helms stopped and asked an aide for an autographed picture of the president. Helms didn't even like JFK. They didn't agree on anything. Mm -hmm. But Helms was a collector. He collected Hitler's stationery and wrote a letter to his son on it, which, by the way, I got to see an exhibit at the Reagan Library here not not too many months ago. Um, just, you know, Helms knew, I think Helms might have thought, uh, tried to do a last-ditch effort, like maybe we don't have to kill Kennedy. Maybe we can convince him to invade Cuba because of this Venezuela plot, which in retrospect looks entirely staged. It looks like the CIA dumped a bunch of weapons there and tried to link them to Cuba. And, well, listen, that, yeah. that, that alleged plot against uh, Venezuela is, I think, something that is illustrative of something even beyond that. Now, tell us about the rifle, the disappearing ankle, oh, and yes. the disappearing oh, number. I, I laughed so hard when I read this, and I read it in Richard Helms' own own biography, you know, autobiography. And he's like, you know, I wanted to prove to Kennedy the rifles were Cuban, so I took him, you know, one of the rifles, but there were no serial numbers on it. And I had to explain to him that, well, we use this very special chemical process that allowed the serial number to reappear just once long enough to be photographed and then disappear forever. And I'm thinking, <laughs> and I'm thinking, Photoshop, okay. So see, I had Photoshop way before the rest of us. I mean, and Kennedy is so not convinced by Helms that he's like calmly signing like routine letters to somebody else. And he's like, you know, we can discuss this when I get back from Dallas. But of course they couldn't because he didn't come back from Dallas. But, but wait a minute. You're, 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 you, you left out. Helms had gone to Bobby Kennedy first. Oh yeah, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, because he tried to convince Bobby, because Bobby is a little more gung ho, you know, covert action kind of guy. But Bobby wasn't falling for it either. He's like, I think you need to see my brother. And then I also want to point out, Helms brought a rifle into the Oval Office. Right. Can you imagine the implied threat? I'm the CI director. I can get to you at any time. Mm -hmm. And Kennedy was so courageous. He just like didn't care. It's like, you know, because he even comments like, wow, Secret Service let you bring that in here. And, you know, it's like he knew, I think he knew the implied threat, but he was not going to back down. He knew he was right and he was not going to give in on Venezuela. He smelled another Bay of Pigs in the making and said no. And and then CIA said no to him. Uh, the JFK had previously indicated that he would not invade Cuba unless uh, they were trying to export their their revolution right to other so places Helms, in Latin America. So Helms was trying to pull that last lever, right? Uh, I think the exact machination here is worth uh, at least touching on because it is. Well, if I were to use uh, the language that I would like to, this is going to be on the radio, and I couldn't do that. But the disappearing ink and or the disappearing alleged Cuban serial number on the rifle is, is beyond the pale. Exactly. The, the, the idea that, yeah, you could drop a chemical and, and something would magically reappear for one second just long enough to get a photograph and then disappear forever. I just, like I said, I, I laughed so hard when I read that. I'm like, that's preposterous. 
But this is the this is the chief of covert operations for the CIA attempting to win the president of the United States okay for action against Cuba, brings in a rifle of alleged Cuban manufacturer, says that a particular chemical, when dropped on this rifle, will reveal the Cuban serial number on the rifle, which is not otherwise visible, and then after the ink has been applied, then the serial number will vanish from the rifle forever. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it, I mean that that speaks for itself. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, Helms was desperate and he was going to say or do anything to try and I really do think Helms maybe was trying to avoid having to kill Kennedy, but when he's like Kennedy's not going to budge, he's like, "All right, well, then we're going to have to remove him." Cuz I I do feel I almost feel Helms was like bragging like I knew, I knew the plot was about to happen. I think that's his little you know, nod to the others in the intelligence community who I think would also read it that way. Well, it could very well be. Now, we've got five minutes left in the interview. Uh, I want to have information about where people can get the documentaries, uh, your respective books, and so forth. Uh, we have spoken in the context of JFK's uh, policies with regard to both national security and the developing world. Uh, one of the people who figured in Kennedy's approach is uh, Ambassador Edmund Gullion. And I wonder if, uh, Jim and Lisa, you would just briefly encapsulate, we've spoken about this uh, a couple of times before in this series, but JFK and Algeria, JFK and Vietnam, both of them former French colonies. Uh, what was going on? What did he do? We touched on Algeria, uh, and again, in connection with uh, the legacy that uh, exists in the developing world about JFK. Jim, go ahead. I know oh, this is okay. your, your um, area. <laughs> when Kennedy visited Vietnam in uh, 1951, he looked up two people that he was very insistent upon seeing. And that was Edmund Gullion and Seymour Topping. Gullion was a diplomat who he knew from Washington. Seymour Topping was a correspondent for the New York Times. All right, so he got away from the whole French escorts, and then he saw these two guys. And they basically told him the same thing. They said, look, um, France is not going to win this war. All right? And what they're trying to fight here is not communism, but nationalism. Okay, Vietnam does not want to be a colony of France again. All right. And if we try and help or if we try and take over the war, the same thing is going to happen to us as what happened to France, as what's happening to France, because France cannot get the home front to support this war. All right. And that's been its big failing. All right. And so when when Kennedy heard this from these two guys, you know, it began to as his brother, because Bobby was there, said this had a, a deep impact on Kennedy's thinking. And you can trace this line uh, all the way through from 1951 to 1957, because he gave several speeches on this subject. He wrote several columns on this subject saying that you, the United States has to be for something more than anti-communism in the third world, all right? We have to be for independence. We have to be the, for them to be self-sufficient, all right? And we have to help them do these things. So when he blasted out this speech, which is real, if you read it today, it's, it even seems radical today, because he says something like in there, he goes, look, we just went through this down in uh, Vietnam three years ago, where we were on the losing side there. Do we really want to back the same thing in Algeria? Because France is surely going to lose on this anyway. You know, if we were France's friend, we would be escorting her to the negotiating table to make a graceful exit from this, you know, this doomed civil war. All right. And that's the line that connects these things. And then, of course, once he gets into office, one of the first things he does is he overturns the Congo policy because he didn't know that Lumumba was dead. But that's mm. one of the very first things he did, all right, was change that. And then, of course, he had these battles 
with the Pentagon and the CIA over Vietnam. So these two, these two, uh, you know, different kind of revolutions, he was right involved with them from the very beginning, from 1961 when he goes into office. See, this is the dispute I had. With, uh, Jim, uh, we are almost almost out of time here. Let's okay. carry this over into our next uh, interview. We should never forget that the Algerian embroglio uh, also led to the rise of the OAS, and there's fall links between the OAS, the attempts on uh, the Gaul's right. life, and right. also the attempts on well, the the, the uh, successful attempt on JFK's life. We are all out of time. A very quick Kennedy's and King dot com Black Ops Radio Life Too Big to Fail and JFK Revisited. Uh, where can people avail themselves of these? Okay, I'm I'm just going to talk about my book because I want to give Lisa more time to talk about her book. Okay, JFK Revisited is the two screenplays and many, many interviews that didn't get into the film. It's a hardcover book. You can get it on Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble or probably even at your bookstore. And uh, it's it's very valuable book in relation to the films. Lisa. Yes, my book is available at Amazon, at Barnes and & Noble. And, and again, any bookstore will order it for you. So if you have a favorite you know, bookstore local to you. Please support your local bookstore. They are amazing. That's how I got all my research was small bookstores and libraries. And the book is A Lie to Big to Fail about the assassination of RFK. This concludes for the record program number 1289. Interview number 26 with Jimmy Jamie and Lisa Peace about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on February 10th of the year 2023. For Jimmy Jamie and Lisa Peace, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.